This is not the dream job, this is reality. I am an actor. The best word I can say but uh, will describe this was boom. And I think that you are an ostrich. Well, your head must be in the sand. But Premier League is a fraud. Ferret head. Very much looks like a ferret, doesn't it? As far as that, that's the second time it's gone off. Hello and welcome to the Bosley Football Show. That's your football show here on Bosley, brought to you in association with Ladbrokes. I'm Gavin Casey and I'm joined by the riding pride of County Longford. I usually reserve that for Joe O'Neill, mm. but it is Mr. Gavin Cooney. It's damning with the faintest of praise, by the way. Uh, sorry? It's damning with the faintest oh, of praise. Oh, pardon me, I didn't hear that. Um, sorry, that's a bit unfair. Yeah, no, um, thanks Gavin. Thanks for, thanks for such a lovely introduction. Uh, no problem, Gav. I always try and treat you, you know. Uh, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Podcastic Fantastic. I yeah, if, that, you have an, if you have an Android phone and you use a podcast app, we're on mm. it. Yes, and also iTunes. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, like, it's we've got you. We've got all bases covered there, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, new Boxing Podcast is live as well, by the way. Uh, we're joined by Michael Conlon. And that's also on iTunes, but you have to search balls.e uh, podcast as opposed to balls.e football to mm-hmm. find that one. Uh, Gav, coming up in today's show, we've got a really interesting chat with Johnny McKinstry. Yeah. Who people at home may or may not have heard of, but he is, at one point, he was the youngest manager in international football. This is an Irish man. Mm. He's from Lisburn in Nordyland, uh, but he has managed Sierra Leone and Rwanda. It's a really fascinating story. And then he's, he's also worked in Newcastle. He's worked in, in the States with New York Red Bulls, worked in Ghana as well, and has, was over the Craig Bellamy Foundation. So we got into all of that. It's a really interesting chat. Yeah, it's, it, it really was. Um, I'm also fascinated, Gav, by the fact that, like, is it a Longford thing that you pronounce Newcastle where you put the emphasis on the castle? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. I remember when I was growing up, I used to. Well, we didn't really. We didn't. We didn't. We didn't really have Sky TV in the sense that we didn't have Sky TV at all. Yes. And okay. so to take in the Premier League live, I listened to Premier League live on Today FM, and hosted by Michael McMullen. Michael and he, McMullen. Yeah, and he always said um, he used to roar down the mic, at Newcastle. So I think <laughs> I think that's Michael McMullen. Michael McMullen's broadcasting legacy lives on in this podcast where I say Newcastle. Newcastle. Um, did you also call uh, Derby County Derby County? Derby, yeah, yeah, I probably did. Yeah. Now that I say it, I'm saying it in my mind, and now it's going to my mouth, and I'm saying Derby County. Wow. Well, there you go. Why is that another Michael McMullenism? No, just because if you were growing up without Sky as I did, yeah, you're sort of basing these names. And this microphone is not working. You're sort of basing these. <laughs> <laughs> these names on how they read yeah. you know as opposed to how they actually sound like yeah nobody in, in your school playground was talking about Derby County so a lot a lot of my friends still would call them Derby yeah it's only since that I've been uh, corrected anyway <laughs> in uh, the football world today I mean it is Newcastle related the big story of the day of course uh, Joy yeah. Barton we, we rarely we record on a Wednesday evening and we rarely have any news uh, but there was a Enormous flurry of news earlier this today around lunchtime. Uh, Joey Barton Gav has been given an 18 month ban from all football related activity uh, for breaking betting rules, um, as sketched out by the Football Association. Uh, so he's alleged to have placed 1,260 bets on football matches between March 2006 and May 2013. So he's been hit with this enormous ban and he released a very lengthy statement in which. Uh, 
he essentially says that it confirms the end of his footballing career. He forces him seventh early retirement because I mean this covers well up to three seasons. Um, he said uh, that he accepts that he broke the rules, uh, but complains that the ban is heavier and that it would have been far less uh, of a suspension for a less controversial player, as he puts it. Um, I'm not sure about that. For reference, I'm not sure about it either. Because Cameron, in terms of the other uh, players who have been found guilty of breaking betting rules by the Football Association, Cameron Jerome uh, broke them. Uh, He was fined £50,000. Andros Townsend was given an £18,000 fine and a four-month ban, but three of those months were suspended, so he actually served a month out of the game. And Dan Gosling was given a £30,000 fine. Right. But I think the main problem here is that Joey Barton bet on games involving his own team yeah, as in the club that he was at. Um, and I think the reason the bet is much heavier is that it brings the integrity of the game into question. Of course it does. Like it brings the integrity of like seven years worth of games almost. I mean, betting on your own, against your own team. and like Betting on your own team is one thing. Yeah. There's still a little bit of a... Well, actually, more than a little bit, but there is a moral issue there but betting against them when you're probably going to be involved in the game is uh, you can't do that yeah now Joey uh, in that lengthy statement did address that and says that um, he wasn't bringing quite bringing the game into disrepute or in any way undermining his integrity uh, because he says basically that the games in the the games involving the teams in which he was contracted with he wasn't involved in those games at all okay um, just to read from the statement first in every game I've played I've given everything I'm confident that anyone who has ever seen me play or played with or against me will confirm that to be the case. I'm more aware than anyone that I have character issues that I struggle with and my addictive personality is one of them. But I'm a devoted and dedicated professional who's always given my all on the pitch. Secondly, on the few occasions where I did place a bet on my own team to lose, I was not involved in the match day squad for any of those games. I did not play. I was not even on the bench. I had no more ability to influence the outcome than I had been betting on darts, snooker or a cricket match in the West Indies. I should add that on some of those occasions, my play Placing of the bet on my own team to lose was an expression of my anger and frustration at not being picked or being unable to play. I understand that people will think that is childish and selfish, and I cannot disagree with that. And thirdly, I should point out that the last of these bets against my own team was six years ago and in a reserve game when I was going through a particularly troubled period and when the Football Association were not nearly as hard on gambling as they are now. Interesting. He's an unbelievable... Like, he's extremely proficient in articulating um, well apologies I guess or explanations for things that you just can't do yeah uh, like, I mean uh, it's, he... it's, it's, it's like uh, not to in any way discredit like I know for a fact I've read his book I know he had a tough upbringing I remember reading at one point I think his father uh, rolled over a dog with his car to teach Joey Barton a lesson mm. like, this is a kid who did come up relatively tough and he is quite a complex individual but if you're able to articulate as well as he can uh, <laughs> your reasons for doing wrong then there's an argument to be made that you shouldn't have done those things. You know, he's not an idiot. Like mm. as much as people might make him out to be an idiot, he knew. You, you, you know, you know, you can't bet against your own team, whether you're playing or not. You're still training with these guys during the week. You know who's fit, who's not fit, who's looking sharp. It's just, it's a moral thing. You, you can't do it. Yeah. Um. Part of, and like I, I understand completely. Like his, uh, his reasoning. You know, oh, I wasn't playing. I was frustrated. Grant. You know, but it, it doesn't mean it's okay. And yeah. it, it also like. An eighteen month, eighteen month ban, I think, seems worse purely because of the stage of its career that he's at. If it was for a young player, I, I don't think there'd be many arguments. I mean, well, I mean, eighteen extent, month ban, given the precedence of their Jerome and Dan Gosling like, and, the, and Andros Townsend, s- is seven, a bit. seven years worth of bets. 
Now, later on in the statement, Barton also says that he, he's gone through a gambling addiction. Um, and he also advised the FA to reconsider their dependence on the gambling industry if they wanted to tackle it. Uh, in the statement, he says that trying to recover from such a condition while being a professional footballer is akin to asking a recovering alcoholic to spend all his time in a, pro, in a pub or a brewery uh, due to the FA's association with gambling companies. Yeah. Um, it's a bit of a mess, that one. Uh, 18 months and retirement for Joey. It's, oh, look, it's, it's devastating for him, obviously, but... Um, I have a feeling, considering the length of time that we're talking about here, I, mm. I'm, I'm fairly convinced that he would have known at some point this is going to come out. Like, I, I don't, there's no way as a professional footballer you can expect to get away with that, is there? Yeah, no, I think that he makes a fair point, absolutely, in, like, in relation to the FA's uh, relation, uh, relationship and de- maybe dependence on the gambling industry. Um, but there is the issue of personal responsibility and... Like, it's a very difficult thing, like, in, to change codes. Like, in Gaelic football, I interviewed Cahal McCarran, the Tyrone mm. Gaelic footballer, who wrote a book about his appalling uh, gambling addiction. And then there were a number of unsavory aspects of his life that he also wrote about. And the intent was to say, look, this is I'm giving my side of the story here. You've read the headlines about these stories, but this is what happened, and this is what I was going through at the same time. So you have to kind of make the connection yourself between how responsible are you for your actions if you're if you're struggling through an addiction which is you know yeah, is, is and like the, it's fundamentally a, it's a, irrational yeah and it is obviously like this it, what i'm saying is not in any way make light of gambling addiction it, it's a mm. very like it is a condition yeah um like uh, look i'm not qualified to say like oh it's an illness it's a disease it, it very well might be and it it is it feeds into the uh Look, alcoholism, for example, and and addictive personalities, as Barton touched upon, and I'm not saying like that you should be um, that he should. Oh, look, maybe I am saying like he should known better. But what I'm kind of trying to get across is the idea that he was a victim of his own addictive personality. Like that's what dictated his decisions there. Yeah, and and, and, and like, just you, as we are in the position, we're not in the position to to make that call as to whether how much can be excused by being addicted and whether it is an illness or not. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm not in a position to make, to pass judgment on that. And to be honest, I don't think the FA would feel that they are either. So they have to kind of look at it quite clinically and say, That's well, look, it. this guy is gambling on games that he's been involved in. The integrity of the game is a question. We have to come down hard on this. Exactly. So and, and that's what it is. And, like, I, and I think that is actually fair. Yeah. Because as much as... Like, for example, if a player... Oh, I don't want to be drawing comparisons between gambling addiction and alcoholism, like, but, it, it, you know, it, it's a similar affliction, I guess, in some ways. It, it has devastating impacts on your life and the lives of, uh, of those around you. If a footballer was, for example, an alcoholic and still active, mm. and uh, in some way their dependence on alcohol was impinging on their ability to carry out their profession and impacting football there would be sanctions and you'd look at an alcoholic and you think well, god love him like he's going through an obviously incredibly difficult time and mm. he needs help and it is the same with gambling but there has to be repercussions at the same time you know um, i think so it's not up to us as you say to like determine whether a gambling addict uh, betting on his own game is that part of of the overall problem is that part of the condition or is that a, a concerted effort to make money off of your own team's defeats I yeah he also um he had a very bad record at betting on his own at games involving his own club. Thirty bets, three wins. 
Um, and they included Archie Rintud here on Twitter. He says, one Joey Barton bet was £600 on his Man City side to beat Fulham in 2006 at home. Fulham hadn't won an away game all season and then Fulham won 2-1. Um, and I think just to round off the Joey Barton chat, there's quite a bit of irony here that's pointed out on Twitter by, by, by a guy by the name of Steve Evans. Simon Evans, sorry. Uh, if the band stands, Joey Barton's last game will be one in which he was criticised for not fouling an opponent at a crucial moment as Manchester, uh, at a crucial moment as Manchester United streaked past him uh, to take the lead at Turf Moor. Oh, let's move on. <laughs> um, Neil Taylor, by the way. This is the other news line that c- arrived like at pretty much at the same time as the Barton news. Uh, Neil Taylor has, uh, you know, broke Seamus Coleman's leg and potentially ended his career. Mm. Um, so we're expecting FIFA to, th- to throw the book at him, you know. They yeah, assembled... This is pretty much the same day that Coleman comes back to Finch Farm yeah. and is, is sort of back in the evidence set up a little bit. They're reintegrating him. Into their uh, into their process. Yeah, so obviously FIFA gathered uh, had a special disciplinary uh, um, look at look at the Neil Taylor in the hopes of oh we might throw the bucket at me. And I remember like I wrote a story with that headline in it. That's why I've said that phrase about ninety times at this stage. Uh, and obviously, I mean, we we need to deter these people from you know flying into challenges and breaking people's legs and ending people's careers. Uh, so naturally, FIFA have today given. Neil Taylor a two match ban. Yeah, that's uh, and he, one he, one extra match one on extra top match. of what he would have gotten for a straight red card in any other circumstances. Now the problem with that, um, firstly, you can, I mean, God Almighty, a long suspension there. Firstly, is would be so beneficial to the game, enormous because thing. because the argument did, like the big thing with the tackle itself is yes, it's a red card straight away. You know that when it happens, and fair enough, but. Uh, the f- tackle is of, uh, is of such force that there's really no doubt about that. I think the the more contentious one really was the bail one, where you should be given a red card mm. also because if you're lunging in recklessly towards a fellow professional and you could do significant damage to them, as Bale did to John O'Shea, uh, who received something like 12 or 14 stitches to his shin, uh, then you should be sent off because it's very, very easy to stamp this behavior out of the game when it's punishable by a red card. Um, I suppose the Taylor thing is a little bit of a, I don't know, the opposite of a microcosm, a macrocosm, I guess, uh, of this in the sense that if you're tackling somebody that ferociously and that violently, then the punishable, the punishment should be more severe than a straight up red card. It should be a lot more severe than an extra match on top of a straight red card. And that's the only way to prevent uh, idiots from launching into fellow professionals' legs. Mm-hmm. Uh, FIFA, once again... Acting like dickheads. Uh, we spoke with Johnny McKinstry. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, yeah, we sold it at the top of the show. It was really good chat. Uh, Johnny, at one point, was the youngest manager, no, the youngest international manager in the world. Mm. Uh, he was 27 years old when yeah. he was managing Sierra Leone. Making me feel kind of useless here. Um, yeah, I'm, and I'm sure all listeners will agree. Most, surely. <laughs> yeah, most. Let's throw that on there. Johnny McKinstry, thanks very much for joining us on the Balls Day Football Show. Johnny, your story is a remarkable one, as we'll discover in the next few minutes. But I suppose, taking us back to the start, I think your managerial career kind of began at a juncture that we all experience where we realise we're just not good enough to be professional footballers. Yeah, um, it was one of those things. I think growing up um, up in the north of Ireland, I was very, you know, just like a lot of young guys I grew up playing football I played rugby and squash as well as you know just very sporty growing up and um, football was always the number one sport but I think probably by the age of 15 16 I was reasonably self-aware that you know whilst I you know was 
competitive and enjoyed the game, I wasn't going to end up playing in the Premier League. Um, and it was just one of those things. It was like, well, do you try and go down the route of maybe, you know, earning a bit of money from the game and being a semi-professional in Ireland and working full time during the day? Or is there another way of making football the full time job? And, you know, coaching was that option. And I got into it relatively young and enjoyed it and seemed to have, you know, good feedback about how I was doing and just sort of took off from there, really. Like that uh, sort of realization, and I suppose the wherewithal to go into coaching to remain in football. Like it comes to you at a very early age. You start taking your coaching badges at sixteen. Yeah, um, I actually I took. It was funny. I was looking at this the other day. I took my first coaching session um, sixteen years ago this spring as part of work experience. So obviously, you know, when you're at you know about to do your GCSEs, you go out and do work experience for whatever it was six eight weeks and i remember i can't however remember however long it was you won't know you did work experience for but i did mine with the irish fa and you know that was before it even done any badges and i enjoyed sort of the week or two working with them going around the schools and went and did my sort of coaching badges as soon as i got off you know finished my exams that summer so yeah it was it was one of those things of you know very early on just getting on that sort of pathway it's quite interesting to me, Johnny, that football is often quite a closed industry. And when you were taking steps into coaching in the early 2000s, like the, that generation of coaches like Mourinho and Benitez and Brendan Rodgers later, the guys who reached the top of the game management who didn't have great playing careers, that hadn't really happened yet. So was it always an ambition for you to rise to the top? And did you always see football management? Well, that could be a profession like being a doctor, being a lawyer, that I decided at an early age, this is what I want to do. And then I just work hard and progress up through the ranks. Yeah, I think definitely... I, I said to people at that time, you know, there was like, what do you want to be? You know, careers advisors and stuff. And when you responded with you wanted to coach football, they thought you meant you wanted to be a PE teacher. And, you know, with all the greatest respect to PE teachers in the world, you know, that wasn't what I wanted to be. I was never really that interested in staying in and being employed in mainstream education. I wanted to be in more the professional side of it. And yeah. Yeah, back then, I would have said, yes, I want to coach in the Premier League and stuff. But I was probably saying it at the age of 16, you're probably saying that out of naivety um, of exactly how maybe difficult and challenging that objective is. But for me at that time, it was like they were always different things for me playing in football. Um, you know, it's that famous, uh, um, I think it was Arrigo Saki said it, you know, you didn't you don't have to have been a horse to be a jockey. <laughs> and it's very true it's they're very different industries and just because someone you know has played the game doesn't necessarily mean they have the skills to be a top coach or a top manager it doesn't mean they don't have those skills but it's not a given and and for me i always looked at them quite separately um probably along the way at, at one point you might have been like okay well i'm quite content to be an academy coach or something like that but then opportunity presents itself and you get a little bit of success and that ambition of maybe reaching the very top level is is a lot more realistic than it maybe was when i was 16 uh johnny you grew up a newcastle fan and then 2004 i think it is you get this offer to be like a player development officer at the club you supported uh as a child and you kind of are still a child almost at that point like that must have been kind of surreal yeah no that was fantastic um over i was over that came about i was over going to university 
university in um, in Northumbria in Newcastle upon Tyne, and obviously I went there. It was a university that was very well renowned for its sporting courses, um, studying sports science, and but ultimately those three years for me were as much about getting experience coaching as they were about studying the degree. I was probably you know on a football pitch twelve plus hours a week you know, equivalent to how many hours I was spent, spending in lectures every week. And one of those sort of positions I had during that time of a few was, yeah, doing a lot of the work sort of in and after schools um, with Newcastle United, working in the primary schools, working in the junior secondary schools and, you know, just working with young players. And if we identified anyone who had potential, recommending them to be looked at by the scouts of the academy and so on. So it was it was at that sort of junior level of the club. But yeah, for me, obviously, having grown up, you know, watching and sort of supporting Newcastle United, that to be able to be employed by the club and, you know, to wear the badge, to get training kit at that stage, you know, I was only, what, 19 at the time, 18, 19. And um, you know that's a big thing when you're 19 to want to be a football coach to be given the opportunity to be a coach but then also to be employed by the team you grew up supporting that was all you know it was it was all great positives for me yeah I guess you're coaching players around your own age at that stage rather than are not much younger than you does that help in terms of there's a level of empathy there yeah, um, obviously while I was at Newcastle um, I was basically coaching I think three different teams at the time i was doing the community stuff with newcastle united i was coaching an under 16s sort of um charter standard club in gateshead and then was also coaching the university's men's football program and um, i decided not to play i decided to to go in and see if they needed assistance coaching and um yeah so especially with the university team it was guys who in some situations were maybe a year or two older than i was um so from a very young age I got used to, you know, coaching people who were not necessarily a lot younger than me, who were the same age as me and older than me. And we achieved success with that team. We went on, we won the, the British Universities Championship. And it's funny, it's 10 years this year, um, last month that we did that. And sort of, it's funny, you stay in contact with some of those players and, you know, meet up with them through the years. So the last month's been sort of reminiscing over mm. that team and how good it was and how sort of close-knit it was but but yeah those those years definitely it it posed challenges because you've got to sort of claim the authority in those situations but equally gave me great opportunity to sort of grow my own coaching style yeah if for a minute you'll indulge and maybe this is only my in, of interest only to me and nobody else but when you're taking your ua for pro license i think do you, is it correct that you a write a thesis and if you did what did you write it about i'm oddly fascinated with this the um so the uefa pro license slightly changed this past year so okay. we had to do you do have to write a project but it was something that's called a professional development plan where you basically map out where you've came from where you are now where the next five ten years you hope it will take you and the, the active steps that you'll move towards that and it comes together and like you know an 80 page dossier okay. um, that sort of maps out your career which that's sort of the way uef is going now so it's not so much the thesis um i've done footballing theses in my time my um degree um my topic for my degree was the sources 
because of stress within elite coaching where I interviewed 10 pro licensed coaches and managers to find out what stressed them the most um okay. so at the at the age of 21 i was always i was already sort of putting the markers down on the things to look out for later in life what kind of answers did you get johnny oh, what stressed people the most yeah. um players yeah no, the, um, <laughs> well i just it's the non-footballing things and I, and I would agree with that now it's the amount of things that you've got to deal with as a coach um, that take you into foreign territory, you know, so your star player might be having problems at home, you know, maybe the girlfriend or the wife's not happy, maybe the children aren't doing well at school, but if that's impacting on a player's ability to perform, then is there a way that you can softly try to assist? You obviously don't want to get involved you know, just go in like a bull in a china shop because it's a personal matter maybe for the players. But at the same time, you need that player to perform for you in a, in a selfish sort of viewpoint. Mm-hmm. So can you help them deal with these situations that maybe aren't footballing situations? Um, it really is, you know, being a football manager is so much about dealing with people and personal issues as much as it is about tactics and fitness. Yeah. And in that personal development plan you talked about, Johnny, when you're mapping out your future at that, I can't, I don't know what age you were when you were doing that, but where did you envisage yourself going? Um, ultimately, for me, you want to work at the very top level. Um, if that means the Premier League, fantastic. But equally, I know the Premier League is the most sought after league in the world and publicized league in the world world but equally you know the Bundesliga in Germany, La Liga in Spain, Syria and Italy all of these are top top leagues and in an ideal world you would love to end up there that's not going to happen overnight I don't expect you know a Syria team to ring me up tomorrow and say you know come over we would like to give you the job um, that's a long journey but equally when I was 21 finishing university i sort of said to myself right you've probably got to go and sort of go on a meandering path through football coaching for 10 years to prove yourself before you'll get taken seriously as a coach because you weren't a pro player so at 21 i knew to get to the professional game would take 10 years and now that i'm in the professional game I anticipate it might take another 10 to 20 years to get to the top level of the professional game so you know, I'm not in any rush. Mm. So this meandering, Johnny, takes you, I guess, to Ghana. Like in the summer of 2006, you become an academy coach over there. Uh, you were selected as Manchester United's grassroots manager of the year. Yeah, grassroots coach of the year for the work I was doing sort of in Gateshead with the youth um, team. The It was an interesting one going to Ghana. and it, it At that stage, was only a short-term thing. The... The, the person, Tom Vernon, who was working, ran a football academy in, out, out in Ghana, but also was the Manchester United scout in Africa, um, got in contact through, I think, as a result of me having got the award from Manchester United. And it was really a case of they were looking for a new technical director at their academy. Now, at the time, I was only 20 um, and hadn't finished university yet still had a year left of my degree and but tom was interested in me looking at the role but equally i'd never been to africa before so it was agreed i would go out for a month and sort of coach and do a bit of the job and see how it worked and it was a great 
experience. You know, I worked with a lot of very good players, some who went on to play in World Cups and African Cup of Nations and the Champions League and the Europa League and so forth. And the um, But at the end of the month, you know, I was 20. I wasn't ready to be the technical director of any football academy. I, I was very good on the coaching side, but I still had a lot to learn on the management side. And so it was agreed we would stay in contact, but that the time wasn't quite right for me to step into that sort of senior management role. And I agreed with that. Um, but ultimately, the contacts developed through that sort of period of time. Then several years later, opened the door to going back to Africa and basically the snowball started growing in terms of opportunities um, to move into the professional game. Like the, you mentioned how uh, age 20, you're maybe too young to run an academy, but then age 21, you're off to New York, which again is quite the landmark event in, in a normal person's life. Uh, this one is particularly interesting to me. Like I, I have a friend, uh, Ethan McCarthy, who recently left his job as Cove Ramblers under-19s manager to do a similar thing in New York. Uh, you became the pre-academy coach uh, at the Red Bulls in 2007. Yeah, the um, New York, and again, you sort of look at things that sort of shape your your career, but also maybe your personality and your style and your approach to things. Um, going to New York was fantastic. And again, it was it was a great opportunity in the sense that the club got, I was in touch with the club. Originally, it was to go out and maybe, you know, work with one of the, their community-based clubs because I just finished university and it was to go out and work with one of the regional clubs. But they saw my CV and I got a second phone call from them saying, look, our academy have sort of seen your CV and they've got a position with the junior age levels and they'd be interested in chatting to you. And they came to me and said, look, would you, we'd be interested in you working with our more elite players than going out into the communities. Would you be interested in that? And obviously the answer is yes. You want to work with better players all the time. And, you know, so went out there and, yeah, three years, three seasons spent in New York. And you're just coaching so much in America. Um, I was coaching maybe 18 to 20 hours a week. I was on the grass coaching different age categories within the academy. And um, for the same age, at, at the age of 21 in the UK, no matter who I was working for, at most you'd be on the grass, what, six hours a week? Mm. So I was in the same linear timeline. I was completing three to four times as much work as someone here based in the UK or Ireland. So I was accelerating my development much faster. So by the time I'd reached, you know, 24 and was looking now to leave New York, I'd amassed, you know, hundreds into the thousands of hours of coaching experience. Mm. And after New York, you went to Ghana and then ultimately Sierra Leone. Johnny, talk to me about the, the thought process, because I assume you had like, a relatively comfortable life and job living in New York, and then it's a bit of a step into the unknown to move to Africa. Yeah, and it, it wasn't an easy decision. Um, I was very comfortable in New York. The club had sort of shown a lot of backing and confidence in me. We just got a new three-year visa um, for me to remain in America, which aren't easy to come by. Mm. Um, they weren't, they're not easy now, and they weren't easy then <laughs> to get long-term work visas. It's easy to get a six-month visa, not so easy to get a three-year one. And I was only maybe eight or nine months into a three-year visa. And, and 
but I was always upfront with the club that, you know, I was ambitious and I was happy where I was, but if something came up, I'd let them know. And this opportunity came up and I let the club know straight away, but it took another three or four months before I sort of made my mind up because it was a step into the unknown. But ultimately my deciding factor was, look, I want to try and give it everything to reach the top of this game to see how far I can go. And I just felt in America, the spotlight then nor now, I believe, is really on the game in America. You could be the best coach in the world in Major League Soccer and get to the pro level and win trophies in Major League Soccer. And I still don't think you get huge recognition back in Europe that you should get. Whereas I looked at it and went, but if I go to Africa and I produce players that go and make it to the top level and play at the top level, then that will open the door for me to make the next coaching move beyond that. And mm. it really was the case that I felt the spotlight shone stronger on Africa than it did on, on America. Yeah, just to bring listeners up to date on, on the timeline that we're looking at. So you moved, you went back to Ghana, did a bit of academy coaching back there, and then you worked at the Craig Bellamy Foundation in Sierra Leone uh, for a couple of years. And from there, uh, you then became the youngest active head coach in international football with Sierra Leone at the age of 27. Um, so when you were taking that job, Johnny, I'd, like as you look back, or no, like putting yourself back into the mindset as you took that job, you're 27, you're an international manager. Are you thinking, wow, I can't believe what's happened here. This is things have happened so quickly. Or is this, yeah, this is the, this is the natural next step in what I've planned out. Well, do you know, it's funny. We did a lot of stuff with our Academy players in Africa. And one of the things was goal setting for the young players, both in terms of their own football careers, but just generally in life. How do you plan appropriately? How do you set goals to make sure you achieve your ambitions? And in order to exemplify that for the players, I remember leading a session with some of our sort of 15-year-old players, and I mapped out on my board my sort of goals. And I was like, right, here's where I am now. Here's where I've come from. And I put it up on the board. I was like, within the next three years, I anticipate I will be able to become the national coach of Sierra Leone. From there, international football in in um, Africa, then make potentially the jump to a European nation, etc., etc. And I mapped it out for them. And so literally a year prior to taking the job as Sierra Leone coach, I stood in front of a room of 20 you know, kids or 20 students of ours and said, well, this is my timeline. It's not fixed. It's not necessarily it will definitely happen in a year or within two years. But I said, my next natural step of coaching the best young players in Sierra Leone is to coach the best senior players in Sierra Leone. And I see no reason why I can't do that. And, and you know, so I was very confident that I was good enough for the opportunity. Did I think it would happen when I was 27? Not necessarily but you don't necessarily get to choose when doors open up so mm. but it was you know I was very pleased and very honored to get the opportunity to do that um but I would be lying if I said it was a shock that it had come along I did genuinely believe that given the opportunity it would I'd be the right man for the job yeah and 
obviously at all these times, especially in something as volatile as football, you have to contend with kind of extraordinary circumstances. And while you, you did quite a good job at Sierra Leone, I'm reading that you got them to their highest ever ranking in the FIFA rankings up to number 50. Ahead which of was Ireland. Ahead of <laughs> Ireland, <laughs> which is the most important touchstone there. But you did have to contend with the outbreak of Ebola. Can you talk to us about that whole experience? It must have been like extraordinary. Yeah, um, I think things like that, you only really appreciate when you look back on them. And when you're in the midst of it, you sort of, you do what you think's right in the moment in all situations. Um, And in that sort of situation, it was like, right, how do we contend with this? How do we keep people safe? How do we, how do we continue to do a good job in very um, challenging circumstances when a lot of people are losing their heads, you know, how can we keep our heads? How can we make sure everyone involved with what we're trying to do keep their heads? Um, and it was challenging. Like, I, I still remember it. I think it sort of hit me one day when I had to go into town to do a bit of a food run for our academy and with our driver. And you saw the sort of ambulances coming the opposite direction with um, everyone, including the driver, in their sort of white sort of has hazmat suit to protect them because clearly they'd sort of been in an area that was infected and they were coming from that area. So you see things like that and it does sort of strike you and you think, wow, this is this is really serious. Um, but I'd made a commitment to do something and I wasn't about to run away from it. At no stage did I feel in personal danger and I, I knew that if I personally felt at risk, I would have probably said, right, enough's enough, because mm-hmm. it's not necessarily just about you, it's about your family um, back here in Ireland. But, you know, for me, I never felt a personal risk. We were taking the precautions, and we just got on with doing our job. And ultimately, on a football level, which, let's be honest, was the most minor of things in terms of the things to suffer from the Ebola outbreak, but did derail our qualifying campaign. We had great hopes of qualifying for the African Cup of Nations. We'd, we'd got the country into a really good position, um, and we were really positive as a group. But, you know, we had to play all our games away from home. The players were subjected to very rigorous, shall we say, medical testing, even though they were living in America or living in England. They were still having to go through these procedures when they you know, flew into the Ivory Coast or the DR Congo. So that that made it very challenging. And ultimately, the wheels came off that qualifying campaign. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you about that, Johnny. I mean, 3,000 people, I think, the disease killed in Sierra Leone alone. And obviously moving, like losing home games in a qualification campaign is bound to derail it, really. But the way that, uh, the way that you were let go from your job... Did you feel harshly done by considering all of the uh, furore and the, well, the general sort of um, well-being of the country that surrounded it? Like, surely your campaign was kind of a victim of circumstance. Yeah, and I, I also think, like, you only have to look at how things have panned out since. You know, since my my technical staff and I sort of departed that role, they dropped from fifty down into the hundreds and I think are up into the 90s or low hundreds again now but they dropped away significantly um, and 
I think regardless of the outbreak and regardless of having played away games, like ultimately we'd got into this great position. We'd, we'd broken our FIFA record. We'd, um, and we'd lost then two games, which was against the Ivory Coast and the DR Congo. And regardless of whether you have to play home or away, those two teams went on to win in Ivory Coast's case and finished third in the DR Congo's case in the whole tournament. So you sort of look at the two results that ultimately we were judged on. And I think we were just more than victims of the circumstances. I think we were victims of our own success Hmm. because by being successful and by moving the team forward, the goalposts had moved and the federation's expectations had changed, right? We're in the top 50 of the world rankings now. We surely have to be qualifying for the African Cup of Nations. Well, you don't always continue an upward trend. You have to plateau at some stage and then you go again. So I think we were victims of our own success as much as anything mm. yeah your next job another international management job with Rwanda and well you didn't get to the African Cup of Nations with Sierra Leone you did with Rwanda and you got to uh, the knockout stages of the African Cup of Nations that the country hosted last year uh, I'm just reading that you eventually lost after extra time uh, to the winners uh, uh, who were Congo sorry um and I was reading this and I was thinking, okay, manager comes in from another country, brings the nation to their best ever finish at a tournament in one of their earliest uh, earliest times competing in that. And I was thinking, well, Jack Charlton. And Jack Charlton is revered in <laughs> Ireland still. Are you a bit of a hero in Rwanda? I definitely, when I speak to supporters and you get messages sometimes via online social platforms and stuff, and I definitely think people are very warm and the support base I think are very warm to what we were trying to do and and where we managed to get to um but again it's sort of I think both times it was very much victim of our success you know we'd done well we'd we'd created new milestones but then it's well, we haven't qualified for the World Cup, so you must be doing badly. And you're mm. like, well, but we've never been to a World Cup. <laughs> you know, so let's keep these goalposts in the same position for a few months. But um, yeah, we did really well. Everyone was very happy with that tournament performance. Um, the atmosphere in the country was electric. Um, the supporter supporters really got behind the team. And, you know, walking out to those games, you know, the opening the opening game of that tournament against the Ivory Coast and to win the game 1-0 and also actually have a penalty saved. It could have been even more, but in front of 40,000 people and it just to, to see, to see that much joy on the faces of so many people and know that you've played a small part in doing that and bringing that emotion to them is very, you know, is very moving and it's something it's, it's what football's about. It's what being involved in football is about as much as the medals and the trophies. It's about giving people something that really brings them joy in their lives. And yeah, that was something special to be involved in. But like I say, um, people's ambitions change and it wasn't meant to be going forward. Did you find like that such an achievement was almost like a definitive moment for the country? Because I think previous to this, if you if you mention Rwanda in in Europe, people do associate it with a massacre that probably defined the country itself. 
uh, and then you've sort of created this uh, sense of happiness and, and achievement that maybe people didn't believe was possible prior to that. Well, I think the one thing as well is that I've learned is the, the image that people have, you know, in Europe especially of a lot of African countries is not necessarily what the actual situation is. You know, Rwanda is a very progressive country. And since the atrocities of 22 years ago in the genocide, they've came on so much. Um, the country is, uh, is a role model now for the rest of Africa in terms of how to develop a nation and in terms of the infrastructure and everything. And it really is, you know, it, it, it's almost like living in Europe, but in Central Africa. And mm. it, um, as such expectations sometimes, like I think for a long time, people were very frustrated with their football team because they saw the country making all these positive leaps and bounds in technology and infrastructure in their place in the African sort of status quo. They were moving forward more and more year on year. And the football team wasn't. The football team was lagging behind. And we were able to come in and do something that brought the football team, you know, forward. And that sort of made people go, yeah, this is the football team that we want to represent Rwanda because we see ourselves as a very progressive country. And now we have a football team that in itself is quite progressive and, and young as well, which also, you know, Rwanda is a very young nation in that sense. And I think, yeah, it, it matched up with with the view, the picture that people want to give of the country. Hey, Johnny, I don't know how... Um... I assume you're aware of the reports that um, earlier this year the Times uh, did a report on what happened to the to the Craig Bellamy Foundation in Sierra Leone uh, in recent times ever since, well, I've, you've long since gone at this stage, that basically it had fallen into total disrepair and that uh, some of the boys involved are kind of living in, in squalid and quite difficult conditions. Uh, do you know what happened there and how do you reflect on seeing the academy in the state of disrepair that it is now? I think... It was always, the challenge in Sierra Leone was always there. Um, I think on the outside, people see that, oh, this, you know, professional football, oh, there must be so much money going in. Craig was immensely committed to what was happening there and put so much of himself in, regardless of the money, he put so much of himself in. And, you know, so I'm sure, without wishing to speak for him, I know he'll be very disappointed in the way it's went. Um you know, when I'd left, we'd obviously steered the academy through the Ebola outbreak and sort of seen through the light at the end of the tunnel. And it's it's a challenge, you know, but let's not get away from the huge positives that's, that have happened there. You know, there's, there's a dozen boys out on full educational scholarships in America. Um, a couple of boys ended up going... I'm playing for a year out on loan in, in Asia, and I know we're now at bigger African clubs. And um, One's playing professionally in Denmark, having been at a college in England for, for a few years. So, you know, yes, it's disappointing what's happened, but I just think there was a lot of good done, and I think it's important that we see the good that was done, um, you know, moving forward. And, you know, I, I still stay in contact. I also know that... You know, sometimes things are, I don't know, over-exaggerated a little bit. Um, I know I'm in contact with some of the boys in Sierra Leone still on Facebook, and definitely the, the news report that was written in that, that maybe wasn't 
it's not the way they tell it anyway. Sure. In terms of your own career, Johnny, uh, just to wrap up, I guess, what's the next step? Have you mapped beyond this current point? And uh, what are you looking at doing next? Um, it's really just about scouting out the right opportunities. Um, it's, it's about sort of finding the club or the association that sort of matches up with where I feel we can take it. Um, I've spoken to a number of people over. I'm based in London now um, for the last lot of months, and it's been good to go and watch a lot of football here in the UK again. And I've spoken to a few different clubs and some associations. And ultimately, we just haven't got to that point where we feel we can sort of get it over the line and 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 do what what I feel needs to be done. And that's the sort of thing. It's important that you try and pick the right club because there are some clubs that you know aren't good situations to throw yourself into um you look at a club in england for example like late orient here in london mm. you know it's a club with huge history and great supporters i was at one of their games a couple of weeks ago great support base great club but they're going through, through tremendously hard times with whatever difficulties at ownership level and and that's a club that you sort of look at and go they've had five managers in the course of the last 10 months they can't pay you really the players. They can't pay their you don't want to go stuff. anywhere near it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have to you have to pick the right moment to get back in, you know. And there's been one or two things that I've thought have been close recently, but ultimately we haven't quite got there. Um, but I'm sure, obviously, we're coming to the end of the season now in a lot of European leagues, and there'll be a lot of opportunities sort of presenting themselves over the next month. Do you reckon it will be England? Will it be Europe? Or could you see yourself going further afield, particularly for an international job again? Um, I'm very open to it. I think it's it's more about the individual opportunity. Um, you could get a really sort of poor opportunity here in England that might seem appealing because it's in England, but you might have a fantastic opportunity in, in Asia, and, you know, yes, one's the other side of the world, but maybe the opportunity's much better than the one here. So it, it really is just about assessing the individual opportunity and, and seeing if you sort of click with the management of the of the, of, of the club because everything's always sort of rosy in the garden when you get together. Um, you know, when you get together with a club, everything's fantastic. It's like having a new girlfriend. Everything's great. But... You've got to sort of try and look in the crystal ball a little bit and go, right, well, is this club going to be supportive when we hit a sticky patch? Because the sticky patch will always come. And do we have the right sort of infrastructure and the right support around the position? And you've got to try and be a little bit of a fortune teller in that sense. And sometimes you get that right. Sometimes you get it wrong. Um, but, yeah, it's just it'll. I'll look at different opportunities as they arise and see, you know, see what feels right. Big time. Well, listen, Johnny, we wish you the best of luck with those opportunities. Hopefully a few uh, come by your, your uh, or flow by you there in, in the next couple of months, certainly in May. Uh, thanks very much for speaking to us. Thanks for taking the time. No problem at all. I uh, really enjoyed it. Yeah. Cheers, Johnny. Thanks, Johnny. That's no problem. Yeah, brilliant to hear from Johnny. We wish him the best of luck as well. I mean, it's going to be a really important couple of months, I presume, in his career. Maybe not because he's 31 um, now. So I, he, think, he, I think we all need to comment on his magnificent accent. It is glorious. It's magnificent. You, you and it's say, not quite parody levels like Graham McDowell levels. I, it's kind of spot on. It's 
it kind of reminded me of it's the Northern Irish version of when somebody from Ireland goes to work. Well, I guess he did go to work in America, but you know, you see, um, what's that guy's name that went to Griffith College that works for like being sports? And he is like a Kevin mid- Egan, Kevin, like a mid Atlantic accent. Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. It's I really, great. really enjoyed it. It was, it was soothing to listen to. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we wish Johnny the best of luck. <laughs> <laughs> Earlier on today, we were on Facebook. I mean, I just, I, I don't know, I got carried away. It was, it was really, really something. Uh, we were on Facebook Live earlier. We did a thing recently where we were talking about just like random, obscure footballers, be they, be they Premier League footballers or footballers from further afield. Uh, we did it for no reason at all, actually. And people seem to, you know, get involved with, with the uh, comments section on Facebook, sending in random names. And like, there's always been an idea, there's this idea, the only two things you need to achieve something great is a good idea and not enough time. Whereas with this, we've had no idea and nothing but time. And it seems to have worked out. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we did it again, basically. Yeah. Uh, we got Mark Farley in, though. Farley joined us. out a bit. Farley joined us. Now, we had a couple of guys that were on our minds a little bit. Like, I mm-hmm. wanted to know what became of Malcolm Christie. For example, um, I wanted to know where the story's true, that he became a car salesman uh, after he'd finished playing. Uh, we had a couple of those on our own, but also like some of the suggestions from you guys at home were fairly spectacular. A lot of guys that we hadn't thought of recently. So uh, this is how we got on. It's only about 10 minutes or so. Uh, and uh, We'll see you on the other side. Get double the odds on first goal scorer with Ladbrokes. That's right. If you're winning first goal scorer scores in the opening 20 minutes of selected live matches, then Ladbrokes will double the odds. Available in Ladbrokes shops nationwide. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. Dunlewy.net. Hello and welcome to the Ball Bag as part of our Ball Study Football Show podcast brought to you in association with Ladbrokes. My own name is Gavin Casey and I'm joined by Mark Farley to your right and my left. How are you? Delighted to be on the Ball Bag. <laughs> First time Ball Bagger, long time listener. <laughs> long time fondler. Uh, Gav Cooney is here as well. Yeah, Cooney, what's glad the to be here. Glad what's to be Bill O'Reilly. We're doing it live. What's the crack with the microphones, firstly? Uh, I see I I'm... Gone as in oh, see, I, need to, I need to type so we're doing uh, arguably our most successful slot ever well yeah we're back with uh, do we have a title for it? Uh, name a random footballer who we haven't thought about in ages because uh, we, we've done that's, things it's that a we've long put, enough title but we've, put, we've done things in the past we've put a lot of thought and, and time into crafting and none you of them you might remember really, the bin <laughs> <laughs> none of them have really worked and the ones that worked is when we just kind of come on and slabber about a few random footballers um, and I need a laptop because I am in well, we call it Dictionary Corner. I'm trying to put it like a smart name on Paul it. Paul Digoff Corner. Yeah, I have Julian Dick's Corner. Yeah. Digoff Corner on the ball Dick bag off. is pretty good. It's, yeah. Well, it's getting into dangerous territory. Uh, let's kick off because we actually don't have a lot of time. But basically, yeah, the premise is quite simple. Uh, if you think of a random kind of obscure Premier League footballer or a footballer from anywhere from the 90s or the 2000s or even... Are any of us qualified to talk about the 80s? No, I'm Maybe Mark. not. Are you, uh, Mark? I don't think so, no. <laughs> no, all right. We'll try, try and keep it to the it's 90s and the 2000s then. But, you know, you're... Uh, well, no, Paula Wanchop is too... He's too mainstream. But you're Martin mm. Pringles and you're uh, Mark Fish. Linvoy uh, Primus, if anyone Linvoy Primus. Matt We've got a couple of kickers off, so like, well, we will get to your comments, obviously. Just throw in random names. Let's see what we can come up with. But uh, I think, Mark, you've got one to start us off. I'm going to go with... I, I was thinking of that Leeds team, that magical Leeds team mm-hmm. that uh, got to the semi-final of the Champions League. You don't spend League. too often uh, no. thinking of that magical no, Leeds team. 25 years today, to the day, since Leeds secured the first division title, the last first division title ever, with uh, the, the, the best own goal ever seen. I think we have it up on Facebook somewhere. We get shift played. But I digress. My random Premier League footballer is Olivier Decour. Uh, I was actually a big fan of Olivier yeah, Decour. Yeah. Um, French midfielder. He was in the documentary that we were championing, the Le, Le Bleu. Bleu. Uh, 
Interesting story about Olivia Decor. I was doing a bit of research on him before we came on. Uh, he sued Donald Trump. What? Oh, really? Yeah, Don- Olivia Decor sued Donald Trump back in, I think it was 2011. He was involved in a like a big property development scheme for some Trump Tower. I can't remember where it was. Um, and I was Did he go Donald. to Trump University, Olivia uh, Decor? I don't know. No, I don't think so. He went to the University of Hard Knocks in football. <laughs> Sorry. Wow, oh, dear. Wow. That's why he's um, in Dickov Corner. But, yeah, no, it, it, predictably with Trump, it all went awry and he, uh, he filed a lawsuit in 2011. He's also big on art, is Olivia Decor. That doesn't surprise me. No. He was that that came out in his football, I think. Yeah. He uh, he dabbles a bit in the old art himself, and he owns um, a gallery in Monaco. Jesus, mm. I'd say that's the the, the maintenance there would mm. be quite, quite. He brought he brought a bit of class to that Leeds team. He brought a bit of culture. Was it the only class. one? He brought a bit. <laughs> there was like, I mean, Decor kind of. There was no controversy around him. You know, he came. Yeah, he wasn't going around money, stamping on heads, for example. Yeah, anything like that. Or he didn't hang about too long after the went into trouble. He was just he came, he went. He saw he came, he saw he conquered, he left. Went to Roma then afterwards, I think it was. Went to Roma. Roma. Ended his yeah. oh, I can't remember. Did he end his career in Belgium? Did he ever play Oh no, I'm thinking of Stefan Dalmat, actually, when I was gonna say did he ever play for Inter Milan? But I do remember playing like LMA manager and signing to court for Inter Milan. I was a big fan of uh, Olivier Decor. Uh my own one is Frank Quadru. Uh, Middlesbrough oh. legend Frank Quadru. I don't know why loved, we're keeping loved, this French loved team. A, loved a hard tackle to uh, Quadru. The mm-hmm. reason the reason I spend more time uh, thinking about Frank Quadru than perhaps any other footballer at the moment is you know uh, the UK version of first dates. Mm. You know the guy who owns the restaurant. For some reason, he reminds me of of Frank Quadru. But I, I actually um, thought genuinely when I saw that show first, I thought that's that's Frank Quadru. I'm almost certain. When I look at Frank Quadru, I'm kind of reminded of. A dark time in Irish football. We tried to. Do you we remember? Tried, we tried to. We tried to. Him. We yeah. tried to sign no, him off. He, he actually. He's mad to come. Like the people at home might have a couple of stories about this, but Frank 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 Kuljou, He did say he would play for Ireland, and it was only FIFA that ruled him out. I think he they was. Um, you're not actually eligible to play for Ireland, Frank, on the basis that um, you're not Irish. Uh, well, I don't know. Was he <laughs> not Irish? He was yeah. a generation eight to be considered Irish yeah. for footballing purposes. If Philippe Trouzier had finally got here. the job, I'd say Kuljou <laughs> would have oh, come as part of the he uh, he went back to France. He played for Lons after he left uh, Middlesbrough, and then he ended up at Red Star in Paris, which uh, I think they're in the second tier now or the third tier. But uh, funnily enough, with Red Star, uh, uh, David Bellion, who is a name who might feature in this mm-hmm. list, uh, very does. very possibly will feature in this list. He uh, currently works for Red Star in Paris, and his job there is uh, basically to choose the soundtrack, the stadium soundtrack on match day. So, like, wow. David Bellion is, like, big in... Actually, very, like, decor, big into the arts, big into culture, and has... I think he has an office across from the stadium, and he does, like, all of the sort of match day, like, event preparation and chooses these, like, funky tunes. And it made uh, Red Star Paris, like, kind of like the new Stade Francais of, of football, where it's, like, the trendy place to go for a day out. Like, almost like a Sa- uh, St. Pauli-type club now, mm. Red Star Paris, and it's all down to David Bellion. That's uh, Frank Rodrigue, meanwhile, is working for his <laughs> former agent. So As he's, what, he's, like he's an, a, a middleman. An, he's a go-between for players and, and uh, his okay. agent. Yeah. Okay. So he's doing all right for himself. Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm sticking with the Middlesbrough theme again. Uh, Jeremy <laughs> Ali Adier. Oshin oh, O'Connor wow. on Facebook has just brought him up. Yeah, that's good shout, Oshin. Uh, Ali Adier was, in, was part of the Invincible squad with Arsenal. Yes, yeah. he was. He was, yeah. kinda, he was <laughs> I always feel like he was, <laughs> he was responsible no for the invincible that, yeah. season. Uh, sorry, I had really interesting things to say about yours. I know nothing interesting about Jeremy Aliadier. But I always felt he was kind of a poor man's Jose Antonio Reyes. I definitely remember doing a post with Jeremy Aliadier like last year. 
he Celtic ended up in La- La- Larion. He, he scored like 18 goals for Larion in his first season. Mm. I think he's actually scored a few goals in, in France. But he's like 31, 32 now, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm sorry, I'm finding it hard to concentrate because one of the comments has uh, caught my attention. I think it was Donald Green. Yeah, it's Donald Green. Who said Facundo Sava, who was one of my favorite I don't know anything ever. about Facundo Sava. Tell me what? more about Facundo Sava. Anytime Facundo Sava scored a goal for Fulham, he'd take his kind of Zorro mask out of his sock. Was that Facundo Sava? Yeah, put on the Who mask am I thinking of? Celebrating from the fans. He was the biggest weirdo okay. maybe we've ever seen. Okay. But what a man. Argentinian striker. Altogether. Yeah, Jeez. thanks for that, Donald Green. Yeah, that's, that's a, that's a brilliant show. So. Okay, uh, Trevor Hawking says Sunji Hai. Sunji Hai, yeah, uh, okay. That's a, a chap by the name of Hai, but I've forgotten his first name. I just got off the screen there. Brought up Manish. Manish, I'd completely forgotten about playing in the Premier League. Well, so of course, Manish he presents is... uh, the Football League. That's now at BBC. That was the earliest he's ever been out of bed with to play in three o'clock cups. Manish was on Mourinho's Porto team and then joined Mourinho's Chelsea team. Is yeah. That, isn't that the guy? Yeah, did exactly. Oh, Chelsea? Oh, he yeah, did. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's what I, I, I knew he forgotten. was at Chelsea. I thought I'd, he might have been under Big Phil for some reason. He needs to release an autobiography, Manish, the, the Chelsea years. I just like There's an awful lot of Chelsea players there who came for a while at the end of careers or went back, you know, came for a year or two and went off again. Mm. But you completely forget about playing in the Premier League. Yeah. Azier del like, Horno. That's my, that's... Yeah, that's someone else had said that on Facebook earlier on, Hernan Crespo. There's a lot of guys who are just about the place that then faked off again very quickly. Yeah. Like Manish, I'll always remember scoring that unbelievable oh. goal for Portugal against Holland. Was it last, the Euros last 16 or Euros? Qu- no, quarterfinals. Quarterfinals, one of the best Euro matches there's ever been. One of the it was like, a filthy it was game of ball. Ma- it meant, remember Deco and, was it Deco and Mark Van Bommel both got sent off? Yeah, yeah, and yeah, like yeah, yeah. Deco was just there sitting on the steps going, what did they do? Yes. And Van Bommel was kind of putting his arm around him going, yeah, I know, it's ridiculous. We did nothing. What's wrong with us? Uh, Khalid Boularou's rose to fame in that game yep. for some horrendous challenges. Mm. Like the kind of challenges that if you if you did them now, you'd yeah. be ran out of the game. Or apparently not, because Neil Taylor has only been banned for two games by FIFA. <laughs> Get your shit together, FIFA. Boularou's, another random Chelsea Premier League player. Yes. Who mm. you forget about. Also, that Holland team featured Wilfred Buma, who used to play for uh, Aston Villa. Oh uh, yeah. Who then okay. went? I used to, to get him mixed uh, up with Jeffrey Bruma. Yeah, same. Yeah, like I still do. In fact, when he <laughs> Bruma, said did Wilfred, he play with? There, it might be Wilfred Bruma. It might be Bauma or Bruma. Jeffrey. Bruma I think it is Bruma, but it's it's B O U M A, isn't it? Yeah, B O U M A. Oh, I. I, One of them played I'm thinking Blackboard of John Allen Boomsong, who played with... Uh, oh, another man who starred in Les Bleus, the Netflix documentary. One of the great inept defenders at Newcastle. Titus Bramble and Boomsong, the central defensive partnership nobody wanted, but for a Newcastle we're stuck with. Muzzy, is it, says Alex Logan Phelan. Muzzy is it, a random Premier League yeah, player on his own. one of the, like Leicester, I mean, Muzzy is it was kind of one of those Leicester players kind of guaranteed folklore until Leicester actually became quite good and won the league. Yeah, so Muzzy is it and Adi Akinboy. And I suppose was Dennis Wally's involved in that squad. 2002, they're in the Premier League. They got relegated mm-hmm. again. Uh, yeah. One of the worst Premier League teams we've ever seen. But Muzzy is I don't know about that now. No, they were. As in, I think statistically, even they were. That's the went back up, though, is it? Because Izzet was there yeah, in yeah, the yeah, 90s yeah, yeah. with the, Lennon and when they won the league. No, 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 no. Not that oh, team. Yeah. I mean, the team that got relegated in 2002. Adi Akinboy scored his first goal in something like 18 months. Like, bear in mind, yeah, this is a, right. a striker that started every mm. game for this Leicester team. So uh, they weren't great now. Hey, who, who did Muzzy is it, is it throughout there? Hmm? Who did Muzzy is it oh, say? It's gone now. Sorry, oh, yeah. Sorry Muzzy. Uh, Colin Lamb says Pascal Seagan. Uh, another wow. of the uh, less heralded invincibles with yeah. Jeremy Ali Adier and Jose Antonio Reyes. My favourite uh, story about that Arsenal sort of era was how they ended up signing Igor Stefanovs. Because I think they'd taken Stefanovs on trial and he was, uh, he was like playing alongside 
the first team in this trial again so i think it might have been even just like a defense versus attack drill this story is in ray parlor's book by the okay. way and he tells it brilliantly and a lot more uh, cogently than I'll, i'm about to say now but uh basically the arsenal lads on the sidelines so like Vieira, will and a few guys had decided to wind martin keon up so anytime stepanovs did anything well in defense alongside keon they'd be like yes igor go on mate and like anytime martin keon made a clearance or a tackle they'd say nothing <laughs> and somehow arson Wenger was watching this and and signed Igor Stepanovs and the Arsenal lads still believe to this day that it was literally down to the fact that they were cheerleading <laughs> Stepanovs every move and he became and soon, soon afterwards he became an Arsenal player and the Arsenal lads that were cheering him on the sidelines couldn't get over it like they were like oh what have we done another story on signing one of those invincibles is Toure yeah Colo Toure Toure had a trial at Arsenal and he was really wound up and flying into challenges to really prove his worth to Arsene Wenger at which point he went two footed in on Arsene Wenger himself during a training session and Arsene was like oh I like your solidarity and character Colo so obviously sign you I'm really sorry. I love your egalite, your fraternity. I apologize. Again, Uh, move on with Ocean O'Connor's shout for Martin Petrov. Yeah, what a. He had a serious left peg in him, Martin. Jesus, yeah. Bulgarian lad for Man City. Yeah, yeah. He was. um, Because he'd always. Set piece specialist. He was like a prerequisite for Kolarov in many ways. I like. I mean, he played further up the field, but yeah, no. Petrov was a tidy player. That Man City team was a grand team. Like he didn't really begrudge them much. No, they had a bit of money, but not too it. much money. Yeah, they had. Like, they, were, they had, had notions. Steven, I- Steven Ireland was still their best player. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they had notions. Literally was. He was their player of the season. Like, but then they didn't achieve anything, so it was yeah. all right. And yeah. they obviously had Ilano. Ilano's always the kind of the go-to player for remembering. The great days under Daxon Shinoatra. And Sven Juren Erickson. Remember when Sven played Alano right back at one point? Was he, but was he like a left back? Like it wasn't that revolutionary, was it? Left back, was it? No, Alano uh, was. No, well, he was Alano an attacking midfielder guy. Yeah. <laughs> like it was revolutionary <laughs> it was enough. Okay. It's about as far away from your position as you can possibly play. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was revolutionary. Okay, I, don't I mean, unless he put up a goal, Alano. it wouldn't have been much more revolutionary. <laughs> Uh, Donna Corby says Carl Fletcher. I don't know if he's referring to like the uh, lower league striker Carl Fletcher or. But Carl Fletcher's not real, is he? Or Harchester United's Carl. Well, there is an actual Carl Fletcher. Is there? Who used to play for. I, w- I want to say Bournemouth, but. Like, oh, I can't remember. I so he's still knocking around in, in the football league somewhere, I think. Uh, who is it there just mentioned Jesper Blomqvist? Yeah. yeah. By the way, Harchester United's Carl Fletcher, just to let people know what he's doing at the moment, he owns a, or he runs a club in London, a nightclub, not a football club. <laughs> He is still alive. Does he well. do it? In, does he do it in character or just? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Have we you had prepared uh, this. Like you've every every player is like. Well, by the way, let me tell you the story. <laughs> like you seem to. I think you've planted comments in the. Uh, Donna well, Corby Donna has, is one of my boys. Uh, Donna, Donna has clarified boys. that he does mean the Harchester United legend. Yeah. Runs a uh, runs a nightclub in London, Donna. Who uh, is you know who, uh, is not real, Donna. I'm sorry. Sorry to break that to you there. Uh, Daniel Smith, Mikel Beck, Hamilton, Ricard, and Joseph Desire Job from the immortal Middlesbrough teams of the 2000s. Yeah. Uh, I have to there's say, a big, there's yeah. a recurring theme to this actually. Yeah, because I mean, no one really remembers them. It's the first time I've heard that team described as immortal. The thing is, you'd they got the UEFA Cup final, yeah. didn't they? Yeah, yeah it's fun memories of that Middlesbrough team. The Middlesbrough team at the minute are just irrelevant. Like, I was doing a quiz the other day where it was a guest along a seven player at each club, and I just went Middlesbrough. I couldn't think of anyone other than Negretto, so I was like, who else is there? Gibson. I didn't even. Yeah, like, Gibson, Gibson is Gibson. my Gibson. Turns out he's a long serving player. <laughs> is he? He's literally the only player at Middlesbrough. There's nobody else. Uh, I wouldn't say I have fond memories of Middlesbrough. Ever. Uh, uh, well, Janino. 
Kudrow, uh, Julio <laughs> we tried uh, to we tried to sign him for Ireland. Julio Arca played for Sunderland, didn't he? Not played for Middlesbrough. He, 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 well. he played he? for Baldy. He was yeah. a big big into Northeast. Newcastle hated him. I'd say. Okay, <laughs> so he was, Sunderland uh, and Middlesbrough playing tonight in the most pointless Premier League fixture. Massimo Macaroni, Alfonso Alves scoring four goals, have not scored pretty much the entire season against that Man City team. Against that, man, yeah, yeah, yeah that's so linked beautifully. He scored. I think he scored at least a brace against Man United as well. Uh, Did he? Yeah, Alves at one point. Emerson from Middlesbrough, by the way, is a shame. That comes from Mark McCarthy. Yeah, Janino. Janino yeah. has been... He, he's been... Yeah, he's come up he's several up times, times now. Comments, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Tony Lyons says Sean Dundee, and that's not true because we have definitely thought of him recently because there's a there's a poster of Sean Dundee in our office yeah. over yeah. one of our desks. There's a very very kind of um, leery Sean Dundee. Yeah. He's alongside a number of greats there. For some reason, I think he's next to Bastian Schweinsteiger. For some reason, we have a poster of Bastian Schweinsteiger in the office. Uh, in uh, German colours. Dan Breen, Abel Xavier. Do we remember Abel Xavier? Oh, what a of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's, that's pretty, yeah. pretty much Played it. for Liverpool and Everton. Yeah, that was a weird one. Notably actually, yeah. bad player. Abel Xavier, um, the haircut. Was Xavier there at the same time as Finnan or did he come in before Finnan? Pre-Finnan. I, I loved the way I Rafa think. Benitez, speaking to random Premier League players, Rafa Benitez would every season buy a right back to get into the team ahead of Steve Finnan and mm. Steve Finnan would just see them off. Uh, there was uh, Cromkamp, Jan Cromkamp, and Hazemi are the two names. <laughs> yeah, they popped straight to my head. We're um, like, oh, he's going to be the new first choice left back, and then within about two weeks, Steve Finnan was back. He's just the most, one of the most. Obviously, there's a, there's an article on the site that Steve Finnan was actually Dennis Howard in disguise. I have proven that. Yeah, mm. nobody can find him now because he is actually. Dennis and nobody Howard. can find that. And Dennis Howard <laughs> went back to becoming himself after he retired. He, yeah, Google Steve Finnan, Dennis Irwin, Balls Dot is probably the best way to come across that. But Mark does have a very uh, a compelling argument, some might say. I, in fact, I'm, I, it convinced me at the time. So I actually do only consider them as the same person now. Stephen had brilliant at chess. Uh, Stephen famously. Lloyd makes the show for Jason Lee. Jason Lee's unforgettable thanks to being roundly abused by Bedeal and Skinner for years. Uh, Joe Finn, another show for Pascal Segan. Somebody uh, said Didier Gath. Uh, who I, sp- I, I think of more often than not, I have to say. But <laughs> yeah. Didier Gath is like maybe 40, 41 now. But I'm pretty convinced that he's from Madagascar. I want to say, or he's from, an, I think, an island off Africa, mm-hmm. but also he's still playing football for his local club at the age of 40, 41. He's, uh, I think he might be player manager. So he's still running up and down the wing <laughs> at, at his grand old age. Uh, Daryl Patrick Christie uh, wants to talk about a player called Ars Bandit. Um, oh, Ars. Yeah, and all the heart Jesse United uh, um, Well, we're kind of tied for time. Alex Logan Field and Lee Hendry. Anyone remember Lee of Hendry? Of course, Hendry yeah, Lee went Hendry. broke uh, recently enough. Mm. Oh, no. And then became a football agent. He was England a, international, Lee Hendry, yeah, by the way. There's a really interesting really? documentary I'm talking about that, like, it's a staggering amount. I don't want to say a percentage, but it could be almost close to half of Premier League, ex Premier League players go broke when the, might be just British players. Okay. Um, within a certain amount of years after they uh, leave the Premier League. Or Is that including, like, the players that are on crazy wages now? Uh, I'm not sure. This was a couple of years ago. I remember okay. watching the documentary, but um, he was I he was one of the people talking about it. I remember he was really interesting. Maybe check it out on BBC. I think it was on BBC. Yeah. I mean, Jesus, we can't end it like that. that no. Was, that uh, Colin Lamb, Bobo Balde. There's the way. Oh wow! Yeah. Before, we have another couple of shades to get to, but we'll end on Bobo Balde from Balde the comments. was in contention to take the international job of is he f- uh, Papua New Guinea? I think he's from or Guinea. I don't know, mate. I, Guinea, I think Guinea. Guinea. Uh, he was definitely in contention to. Uh, take that international job last year but what he does at the moment which i actually think is great he's got like a, a load of football academies in like marseille that he runs like youth academies and then the players come through 
his academies and he brings maybe like the best players to clubs like Marseille or Nice or clubs in that area along the Riviera and uh, apparently it's quite successful because there was a time I think when Balde actually went bankrupt speaking of the Hendry there and I think oh, he's, Christ, managed, so he's managed to turn it around. We have got a couple more, though. Also as in uh, Pedro Mendes. Oh, yeah. Just give us, let's end on people who yeah. haven't gone bankrupt. Bobo Balde, before we go off him, um, PJ Brown in our office yeah. describes him as the Javi of the air, which I think yeah. is one of the Absolutely best descriptions spot of a footballer I've ever heard. It's Barney Rone esque there from uh, Peach. My random shout to finish is Paul Scharner. Uh, oh, Austrian, Austrian and Wigan centre half. He won yeah. the FA Cup with Wigan, I think. Had a fight with Yogi Love uh, when the German manager. I think he managed Austria Vienna. I think he just reserved, re- uh, refused to be substituted and fell out. Uh, fell out with him. His Wikipedia page describes his exit as being kicked by Yogi Love. He was one of the first, uh, not football hipsters, but hipsters, I believe. Paul yeah, Scherner. His, he uh, always he used to wear glasses and he didn't have any problems with his eyes. But the mental hair as well. His Wikipedia entry says he's renowned for his great flexibility and haircuts. <laughs> which I quite Flexibility. Liked. That's he how I'll remember great. Paul Scherner, his yeah. flexibility. He could wrap his ears behind his head. Uh, I've got one to go and it is Malcolm Christie. Yeah. Uh, there's no doubt about is it. Is that another Middlesbrough striker? It is. Well, I mean, I would have been thinking of Malcolm Christie at Derby. That's where he scored like 30 goals in 187 oh, games. Sorry. But uh, what he did, he, <laughs> had, he did end up... It was Leeds he retired at because yep. he got a spinal injury. And then there was all these stories about him oh, becoming so a salesman. Where everybody goes today. Yeah. <laughs> there was all these stories about him becoming a salesman for uh, Jaguar... No, Aston Martin at the time. Okay. And he was, actually. He, he was selling cars. And I think he sold one to uh, one of his former managers at one point. But now he's the manager, uh, like the sales manager of a Jaguar uh, garage in Newcastle. So he's still selling cars like eight or nine years on, but he's doing okay. I mean, if you're selling Aston Martins and Jags, I'm sure the commission is pretty decent. Okay. Yeah, Mark, have you got uh, one to leave us? My final one was Yordi Cruyff. Mm. Oh, um, of course, yeah. I have two memories of Yordi Cruyff. One is of him being in every Premier League sticker book for Man United, but having never never getting to see see him in real life. Yeah. Until one year, he just randomly turned up playing for Deportivo Alves against yes. Man United in the UEFA Cup. Okay. Like, That's Jordi Cruyff. He used to be in the Premier League sticker books, and that was it. I, I don't think I've ever seen him play a game of football. Apart from that, no, he used to exist slow, uh, solely between the pages of Panini <laughs> sticker books. Uh, he's now um, the sporting director. I want to say at Maccabi Tel Aviv. Is he? I think so, yeah. I, thought, I, I, I remember this from when... I think, weren't they playing Dundalk? Wasn't that yeah, the yeah, yeah. side playing Dundalk? And he, he appointed himself coach and then he sacked himself uh, to go back to sporting director. Well, that's honest of him, at I least. Think so. I think I'm sure Ajax, Ajax named their yeah. stadium after him. They're the, oh, no, that was, that was Johan, sorry. <laughs> that, was Johan. <laughs> uh, that is it for us. But obviously, keep the comments flying in. We've got a full podcast to record, so we can always visit a few of your... Great suggestions, like for example, Joe Finn's Lucas <laughs> Lucas Radaby Radaby. How do you Radaby. Lucas Radaby. I think it's Radaby though, because if, if, if he said I, I I speak Swahili, I don't. Uh, but that is it. Uh, <laughs> Vinnie <laughs> Jones. Sure. Uh, actually, I read an article today about how Vinnie Jones came back to Leeds in 2006 to play in Lucas Radaby's testimonial. So there you go. Vinny Jones follows us on Twitter. He uh, declines he to appear yeah. in this podcast. Actually, <laughs> Vinny, he, said, he literally just said no thanks, mate. When yeah, it was you nice. asked him to get back. Yeah, fair play to him. Uh, keep uh, the suggestions flying in. We've got a full podcast to record. You can subscribe to that podcast on iTunes, on s- not on SoundCloud, <laughs> no, on, on Stitcher. Stitcher on. I don't know. Can you subscribe to things on Libsyn? But anyway, I digress. Acast. Uh, yeah. Any Pocketcast. Any of your Android pod- any of the podcast cast, apps, yeah. apart from Castaway. My well, sister said. My sister. Podcast, my sister texted me earlier. She says, uh, "Oh, somebody's listening to your podcast next to me." And I was like, "Oh, that's that's pretty cool." And she goes, "Yeah, but he stinks." <laughs> 
she was like, I don't know what kind of clientele. <laughs> I mean, let's after. not be driving away listeners individually. No, now. but if, if it is you, you know, take a share. All right, that's <laughs> it. At Ladbrokes, if one team lets you down on your ACA of five teams or more, you'll get your money back as a free bet up to 25 euro. Ladbrokes, online, mobile, and in shop. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. Dunlouis.net. Ladbrokes bet of the week. Gav Cooney, what kind of form are we in? I know we were in good form last week and then it was uh, left to you guys. Did you fuck it again, did you? Yeah, we did, yeah. Oh, Jesus. Um, and I actually chose it because you weren't in when we were picking the bet earlier on earlier on today. Um, Manchester Derby tomorrow night. Or yeah. Manchester Derby. Uh, <laughs> to a bit of a callback there, listeners. Uh, and we've gone with a Ladbrokes special that reads Manchester United to win and both teams to score at 7-1. to one. Wow. Now, I'm sorry, I say we, I say I, I mean I. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know, United beat Chelsea, beat Burnley, beat Anderlecht after extra time in the middle. They're in a bit of form. They're, <laughs> Jesus, I don't know. I mean, they be, and, sorry, they, by they, the way, I, I made this bet and then I read that uh, Paul Pog was injured. Yes. Um, literally five minutes later. Mm, yeah. Well, you're not Pogba's biggest fan there, Gab, so I don't know if that impacted your decision. Probably not. No, but he's better think, than Fellaini. Uh, he is. <laughs> Yeah, that's actually not, not yeah, open to sorry, the That is the explosive insight that people tune into this podcast. I mean, the way the, 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 if you're if you're wondering at home, like how this works, right? Basically, we get a message from upstairs, and yeah. it just says, "Lads, we need a bet of the week." And usually, like you might think, oh, we'd, we'd have some sort of a committee meeting where we discuss uh, the various permutations of the form and class and whatever. Mm. No, it's just like a random thing that you do in the space of a couple of minutes. But we we were in an incredible run of form. Um, We've had a blip, but like I actually like that bet, Gav. I think we could be back on track. I do. I think United... Mourinho obviously is dependent on... Like, his, his approach is dependent on opposition's approaches now, you know, like where he can create a master plan to stifle opposition. Mm. And uh, that's been his, his flaw at United, is that he hasn't been able to create a plan where they're solely dependent on themselves. Uh, it's always combative stuff that works mm. out for him. Uh, you obviously think of the famous Mourinho results uh, Inter Milan at Camp Nou where they got a little bit lucky but reached the Champions League final Chelsea at Anfield Gav you might remember that one um, there have been a few Chelsea at Man City was it last season or two seasons ago when Maddich scores a screamer yes. and they, they, they just have a way of pulling these results out and in difficult Man U- grounds and Man United at home to Chelsea last yes. weekend yeah that was the most recent one so there's no reason why United can't win at City tomorrow particularly because City aren't that good and what Mourinho does he's, is he sits in and then assumes that someone will make an error here or something will go in our favour so it's like Gerard slipping or Herrera getting away with a bit of a handball like there's nothing sure than that Man City midfield will make a whole heap of mistakes oh it's god like there's, it's like the midfield, like midfield is what Guardiola built the Barcelona empire on, and the city midfield has just kind of slowly dissolved into dust as the season has progressed. Uh, Fernandinho has kind of kind of played a fullback a bit. Yaya Toure is the man in the middle now, and the poor man looks so tired all of the time. Oh, the fact that Fabian Delph is now in the conversation means that he's just got no midfield. That's actually true. I hadn't even thought of that. Like, well, I suppose they're they're very heavy on the uh, attacking midfield front. Mm. It's just centrally and defensively. I mean, bring back Nigel Dion. I don't oh, know. God. They're in. Uh, they're in a spot of bother. Yeah, the United to win both teams to score. It's very possible. Um, some of the other odds we're looking at here from that game. So Ladbrokes have special offers for the Manchester Derby. Uh, 
Cooney, you've actually taken one of these special offers. So yeah. I, I thought you'd concocted this uh, on um, your own. No, this was actually handed on a platter. You've shone a bit of light into the magical workings of my research there. Okay, well, the only other one <laughs> is Marcus Rashford to score and Manchester United to win, which did happen in the corresponding fixture last season. That's 4-1. to one. We've gone for the 7-1 to one option. In terms of the uh, uh, other Ladbroke specials, Crystal Palace at home to Spurs, that's tonight, Wednesday, if you're listening to this on a Thursday or Friday. Um, sorry about that, you've missed that one. But uh, United City, obviously, we've ran through those. Uh, that's tomorrow night, which is Thursday. Then on Friday, Cardiff versus Newcastle. Uh, Saturday, Rangers versus... Se- Rangers are playing Celtic again yeah. on Saturday? Yeah. Another Have you seen firm. this? Uh, Rang- Rangers fans are, new firm. Uh, are having... <laughs> Um, but, sorry, I have two things to say about the offer. First thing, Rangers fans are having conniptions at the, at the idea that they might have to give Celtic uh, a guard of honour. Um, yes. Can't really see it happening, really. I don't know. Do you have to? Is it just kind of obligatory? I know it's, it's I th- not literally obligatory, but is it just such a no-no to not do it? it's somewhere in the ranks with like, managers shaking hands at full time. It seems to be like a gentleman thing. This is what you do. But a gentleman's agreement. Huzzah! <laughs> I, to be honest, I can't really see it happening. No, of course I also not. saw Celtic fans tweeting today that if Joey Barton's banned from all football-related activity, he could just go back and try and go for Rangers. I saw another one where, um, yeah, I mean, with regards to embedding against his own team, no wonder he moved to Rangers. Uh, <laughs> um, and I've one other pithy observation to make on the old firm, which I've stolen from another man, as I always do. Uh, Frankie Boyle. I watched Frankie Boyle stand up oh, yeah. the other night and he described the old firm as two sets of fat men singing about a famine. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's it. That was on his latest special, wasn't it? Yeah. 2015, I think it was. Yeah, it's really good. Anyway, back to specials. Uh, Ladbroke specials, that is. Crystal Palace against Burnley as well. On Sunday, Everton versus Chelsea. Everton versus the Chelsea, for mm-hmm. some reason I said there. Uh, Spurs versus Arsenal. That's going to be an absolute conker. Uh Yeah, Spurs will beat Arsenal all right on Sunday. Jesus, the top four is looking tasty, right? Uh, Monday, Watford versus Liverpool, where Liverpool will probably lose again. Yeah, that, that Watford-Liverpool game, by the way, it's, it's reeks of the 2014 game to Crystal Palace. When, like, Liverpool, that's Liverpool's next game, so... All the rivals will have won. Like City and United have played two games in hand, and then Liverpool will have to will have to win to get back to the position that they were in at the beginning of the weekend. And they'll probably go ahead away to Watford there in a Monday night in a tight grind, uh, and they'll bottle it. Troy Deeney, Troy yeah. Deeney. Oh, he'll. <laughs> oh my God! I think of Liverpool's defence trying to deal with the big man. Also, like if Dejan Lovren hasn't slept at the thought of Troy Deeney. Uh, Dejan Lovren looks like he has never slept. But um, uh, one of the things about Watford as well, and we don't speak much about Watford in this podcast, but they're win- They're doing. They're like the antithesis of of West Brom because they're they're spite winning. Yeah. So like they're safe and they're still knocking teams off the road. like teams that desperately need wins. Watford are grand and Watford have just beaten them anyway. You know they they haven't taken their foot off yet. And um, with West Brom, Tony Pulis is in the careful act of m- ensuring he can eclipse this season's point tally points tally next season. Yeah, this is what he does. He'll get to forty points and let's rein him in and let's keep expectations nice and low uh, so we can raise them a tiniest bit and then lower them again next season. That's it. We've gone um, off on a few tangents now. Yeah, sorry. We should say that these these matches. Um, this, the special offer is double odds if you're f- winning first goal scorer scores in the first 20 minutes of those games yeah and there's a couple more as well there's Sevilla versus Celta Vigo uh, Sevilla to win and four more goals in the match is 7-4 to four. okay uh, Stefan Jovic who played with us at the Neymar Juniors <laughs> <laughs> Stefan Jovic to score and Sevilla to win 6-5 to five. so uh, yeah get on that as yeah. I've said there special offers 
Double odds if you're winning first goal scores, score, scores in the first 20 minutes. That's Palace Spurs, City Man United, Cardiff Newcastle, Rangers Celtic, Palace Burnley, Everton Chelsea, Spurs Arsenal, Watford Liverpool. That's a sensational run of fixtures. Like what game? What game? You, give me one game you're most excited by. That's well, obviously nice the, Manchester, the Manchester Derby is by far the most exciting game there. Oh, Unless, Spurs Arsenal. Oh, you're right. Spurs Arsenal. Do you great. think Spurs will win that? Yes, of course. Yeah. No, I think I actually think Spurs will drop points at Palace today. Oh, like is this where did. Spurs fall backwards and yeah, and then end up finishing below Arsenal? I oh, haven't seen the table. Right. And I don't know how the maths. Maybe it's not possible. But I'm. Uh, Didn't I'm they avoid sure. that last year though? No, they finished. Uh, oh, they finished Jesus, you're right. Yeah, this yeah, is yeah, the yeah. maddest Same thing. tottering that as if, day. Uh, if Leicester ever stripped the title for some unforeseen reason, um, mm. it'll go to it'll <laughs> it'll go to Arsenal. That's uh, all we've got time for, Gav. Pleasure as always. Yeah, no, Gav, that was great. Yeah, well, I don't know about great, but your look. Well, uh, we had it's our a work fun. in progress. How many have we done now? Thirty-seven. This is episode thirty-seven. A reminder that you can subscribe to this. Uh, just search Bosley Football on iTunes is the best way if you're on iTunes, and if you've got a podcast provider. On Android, you'll be able to find us on that also. Uh, our thanks to Ladbrokes, my thanks to yourself, Gav, and our thanks as well to Johnny McKinstry. Yeah. Uh, really good to hear from Johnny. Until next week, uh, have a good week. Have a good weekend. Enjoy the football and take it easy.